What's good, devs? After Inscription cleaned up at the Game Developers Choice Awards and the homie Osama subjected us all to his never-ending puns that you know he's been writing for way too long, and even with Will Smith smacking the taste out of Chris Rock's mouth for mentioning his wife and getting a much well-deserved Oscar for King Richard, while those are great distractions, let's not forget that there is a war going on in Ukraine that is still leaving shockwaves. I'm proud to say that the home team, Epic, has been donating proceeds from Fortnite since March the 20th, running through this week to the April 3rd to humanitarian relief aid for people affected. As of last Friday, we raised 70 million US dollars. Let's keep it going. Additionally, at the request of my guest on this episode, I'll mention that Jason comes onto this show to share his own views and solely his views, which do not represent that of his current employer or any former employer. Now, hit my music. On episode 29 of the Game Developers Podcast, Out of Play Area, we sit down with lead software engineer at Visual Concepts, working out of LA, who just released WWE 2K22, laying the smackdown on the competition. He's a fellow Full Sail alumni, whom I had the pleasure to work with at Rockstar San Diego on Red Dead Redemption 1 and GTA 5. And he's worked with damn near all the heavy hitters in the game, from Blizzard to EA working on Battlefield, to where it all started at Big Huge Games working on Catan and Rise of Nation, Rise of Legends. On this one, we'll talk about a day in the life, what it means to be a lead, working on user-generated content tools for WWE 2K22. We will talk about how, what led him into programming from starting by tinkering with computer hardware. And we dive deep into burnout and unpacking that and then talk about everything that goes into pipeline, engineering, build resource management, and all of that. Hailing from Wymere, Texas, please welcome Jason Yurechka. Let's fall the fuck out. Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one -on -one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. You're actually the first pure engineer that it comes on the show. Like I've had a few people that were engineers and then made the transition to design or production or other things, but you stayed true to your roots. I always find it surprising. I'm like, yo, why would you leave engineering? That's like the most money, most control, all the good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I have uh, kind of just loved the problem solving that it presents itself. The day-to-day -day is essentially you're solving problems, and that is something that's always been interesting to me. I have, you know, had a an inkling of like, oh, if I make my own game, I'll be the designer and all this kind of stuff, and like thinking about like how systems interact with each other. Mm -hmm. And then I start to kind of construct it, and I'm like, man, I really want to write the code for this. So it turns into like building the programming layer as opposed to being super deep into the design. I'm always interested to see how people find their passions because I always look at it like I can't do what you do and then you can do what a lot of us can do, but you end up gravitating more towards the code. So I like that aspect of what we do in game dev. Like everybody has their superpower. There are things that I've been amazed by just having conversations with designers. Like I have crazy ideas just like every designer does. And then when I start to discuss it with the designer, they come at it with many different perspectives and many different options. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, I didn't even think about that. 
several times I've talked with designers that have done interviews and they'll discuss about what happened in their interview and they'll be given like a task like, hey, come up with a boss fight. Yeah. And they'll like go like, okay, well, what is the theme of the game? What is all the like stuff that needs to happen in the boss fight? Like how many beats does it take to beat this boss? Like usually you'll have more than one form of the boss. You'll have yeah. kind of the initial one and then you'll cascade into, oh, this is the more you know urgent one. Or as the health progresses downwards, it's like, okay, now he does different moves or, you know, just seeing kind of someone's eyes light up. And their brain just electrify when they start thinking about all the possibilities they could do there is really cool. I mean, I, I definitely do not have that spark that happens when I think about those type of things. I think of more of it as a, okay, I have a boss. So that means I need to have a boss that has a lot of HP uh, yeah. or I have a guy that has a lot of uh, you know varied attacks. But how they kind of interweave into each other is more that designer mindset that it would take me longer to come up with than some of the other people I've talked to. Have you ever done a design interview out of curiosity? I have not. How are engineering interviews? I'm always daunted by whiteboard coding, you know what I'm yeah. saying? It depends on where you go. You know, in general, engineering interviews can be asking you a bunch of uh, esoteric kind of questions that usually you don't necessarily deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. I've definitely had those questions where they ask you very specific like uh, syntax things about the language that you're programming in. Mm -hmm. And if you get it wrong, it's a strike against you. One that commonly comes up and is kind of on all the like prepare yourself for these interviews things is invert a binary tree. And for a lot of people in their day to day, they don't do that. And some of the motivation of a programmer interview as I've gotten farther into programming is to kind of see how they solve a problem as opposed to them being able to regurgitate an answer. But a lot of interviews really have stagnated on kind of those very specific type of questions mm -hmm. that are more formulaic and they aren't actually like, hey, I'm figuring out a problem. Some of the best interviews I've ever had have been things like, hey, we're going to solve this problem together. And yes. either it's like the interviewee and the interviewer are solving the same problem, or if there's multiple candidates, you're teaming up with those multiple candidates and coming up with an answer. Well, that makes so much more sense to me because that's actually what the day-to-day -day job is versus a completely hypothetical situation, which, hey, you're going to have Google, you're going to have your compiler, you're going to have IntelliSense and all that stuff to like study or look up what you need to get the job done. And sometimes maybe as your confidence grows in your ability, it's okay to tell someone like, I don't know, Yeah, but I would look it up. Like that's something that I learned later on. That's a, a viable answer. That it is an actual viable answer. Because I'll just be, I won't try and be fake it. Like I'm going to be very honest with the interviewer and say like, I haven't done that or I haven't heard of that or I have dealt with that many years ago, but I have lost kind of the, the math uh, algorithm that I need to use. Mm -hmm. And so I would have to look it up. It's funny, that confidence thing, for sure. When I was first starting out, I thought that I had to have all the answers and I have to figure it out. And if I couldn't figure it out, right, I was just kind of stepping through it and stumbling harshly. And then, yeah, as you get more experience, you can talk to, oh, I've actually never done that. This is how I might approach it. But you end up asking more questions, right? Like to help clarify or do alternative versions of it for sure. Sometimes you know, like I have definitely failed interviews by kind of saying uh, over and over again, like, you know, I'm sorry, I haven't dealt with that or yeah. 
I don't know that. Like, I had one interview with a company that they were more in the non-game sector, and they wanted me to basically build them a dice roll kind of thing. Okay, that's doable. And I haven't done that. So they were like, hey, so what do you do? And I was like, okay, well, you know, I was like, well, get a random number. And like, you know, I was basically stepping through it as though I was just new at doing these dice rolls when, you know, someone who's a gameplay engineer mm-hmm. would have had a lot more exposure to like, okay, I'm doing random numbers and things like that. So they would have more you know knowledge on being able to like quickly come up with, all right, we have to do random number and then put these probabilities on it and these kind of modifications to it. And I didn't have it, you know, at my fingertips. So I was like, well, I'd have to look it up or I'd have to, you know, hey, I haven't done that. My mm. day-to-day hasn't focused on that. I didn't get offered the job, but at the same time, it's like, I was honest with them. And you know, that's something that as I've gotten older, I've definitely tried to just be honest with them because I don't want to hide and say like, hey, I know how to do all this stuff. And then I yeah. show up the first day and they're like, hey, do this. And I'm like, uh, I've never done this. So just being honest is something that will get you farther than what than you think. For sure. I can't imagine luckily getting a job and then you're not at all suited for the day to day. It is something that I've seen other engineers try and do. Like, uh, like you were saying, when you first got in, and you were interviewing, uh, and if you were doing technical interviews, you're like, I have to have the answers. Mm-hmm. I have to have all the answers. And a lot of the information about how to get a job as an engineer is about having all the answers. Like you have to know everything to the you know, most minute machine level yep. just to even get the interview when what you're going to be doing is editing HTML. My interview at Rockstar was like that. Like I was interviewing and they were asking me all kinds of questions about matrices and data structures and all kinds of stuff. And I was answering them and then comes out my, my job, my first day, it was like, oh, you're going to edit HTML. And I was (laughs) building out like internal web pages to display like build results or Mm -hmm. fix bugs in that HTML. When the job description didn't say anything about HTML and, you know, I was like, okay, well, let's just solve the problem. And, you know, it kind of worked out. I mean, they were surprised that I was fixing things. But at the same time, I was like, you know, you hired me to solve problems. And that's what I'm doing. It's funny for Rockstar, I was definitely grateful to not have been too far removed from my collegiate, like linear algebra and Sokotoa and finding hypotenuses and dot products and cross product. Cross product, yes. And that's that's another thing that usually gets thrown out is default boilerplate questions, like Mm -hmm. those type of things. Like, write the formula to do a dot product or write the formula to do a cross product. And those are things that you can look up. Exactly. And as an engineer, knowing how to use it is what you're looking for. Yes, exactly. I've been able to survive interviews narrowly in mentioning, hey, I don't remember the exact formula. I can't write it for you, but I know that I would use a dot product to get me a value that lets me know what side of the thing I'm on or the degrees that I need to turn towards something. You know what I'm right. saying? Okay, cool. So given that, how would you use it to figure out that you got to point the camera over here at this thing that's shooting at you or something like that? Yeah. <sighs> so happy to be well, well, well removed from those days. That's one of those things where a little bit of knowledge can help. In my career, I've been in roles where I've had to interact with content creators. Mm. And that's something that usually is a rough spot for engineers is they aren't able to translate their highly technical speak into something that a content creator is going to understand very well. I've straddled that line my entire career and I've really liked it. 
Like I really do like sitting down and talking with a character artist and looking at the textures that they're drawing and like how they have it set up from a artistic standpoint, as opposed to just the nuts and bolts of like how a texture is compressed or something like that. The same with designers, like sitting down and like saying like, okay, well, this is how this system is going to work. And like, how are you going to use it? And what would you like to do? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I haven't had those kind of problems as far as I know. That common vocabulary is so helpful, right? Whenever we can speak with you about some of the ways that we would approach what we're trying to do and vice versa. When you come sit with us, see how we're going to try to do something. I'm sure it informs how you build something out or how you architect it. Yeah. And there is sometimes a miscommunication there. That will always happen. You know, there's what you say and what the person hears and then what they intend. And I've definitely been in that triangle where you're trying to like make sense of what they're asking for. And then you try and interpret it and present them with, Hey, is this what you want? And then they'll be like, no, I didn't want that at all. And yes, you know, so there is a give and take there when, when dealing with that miscommunications will happen. They will happen a lot, no matter how hard we try and type to each other and write emails and many layers of approvals. They're going to happen. Yeah. Jay, so I have no clue where the heck you are at currently, what you've been up to all this time. Where are you at now? What are you doing? What's your role? Uh, so right now I am at Visual Concepts LA, the LA studio in Angora Hills. I am a lead software engineer uh, working on all of the creation tools for the WWE franchise. Ooh, the 2K WWE. I'm building out a group to actually provide a tool set to content creators out in the world. It's a in-game, but also kind of a tools thing, which is really in my wheelhouse. And I've done all of the tool side from the backend side to, you know, presenting tools and editors to users and shipping those type of things. So this is really kind of a interesting opportunity. I think of it a lot like building out RPG tools. Mm -hmm. Like if you think of a Skyrim, you can customize your character a little bit and things like that. The tool set that we're providing has a lot of options that are much more surprisingly intricate than what I have dealt with when dealing with kind of like RPG makers and things like that. Is it because there's just so many different parameters and things to tune and tweak and look at and select from? Yeah. And there's also multiple ways to interact with this. So not only is it something where you can create your own character, you can create arenas to host matches. You can create your own championship belts. Yeah. You can create like your own shows, but it's effectively like, so if you saw like Monday Night Raw or something like that, you can create your own version of that where you set up the fighters and you set up the, the arena that it's going to be in and uh, all of that stuff. So there's not only just character creation, there's right. like this universe of things that you're able to create. I have played a lot of sport, sports games and I've only really played the my player kind of modes. Yeah, which are RPGs, right? Yeah, they're RPGs. And I found that those modes are much more narrow in scope than the 2K WWE version is. Like, in, I've played like the MLB The Show mode. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you can create your character and you can kind of customize a face and whatever but you don't really get to create like their outfit. You don't get to create the ballparks that you're in and things like that. I think MLB 2021, this year's version, does have a ballpark creator that you can use. And you can create a franchise type thing where you create a fantasy baseball team and then you can put it in a league. But there's a lot of rules that define that scope of game. 
Yeah. You have to play baseball. The field has to be a certain size. Yep. Uh, and your player has to have a certain kind of normalcy about them. Like they have a face. You can't change their uniform. Like the uniform is, is kind of, is kind of static for that team. Yep. But in the WWE world, like all that stuff is kind of customizable and you can kind of create, you know, a character that wears all kinds of crazy outfits and kind of create arenas that, you know, given the, the templates that we have, you can create arenas that have different displays on it and videos and all kinds of stuff. So it's quite a expansive tool set. It's been a while since I played a wrestler and I was such a big fan back in the Nintendo 64 days and even some of the Def Jam fighters. But yeah, it totally reminds me about this crazy world of, I think I'd spent the longest time creating a wrestler, right? Because you pick each and every one of their moves, you assign stats, and then you're you're building the physical, but then even the costume is a whole other thing, right? It's essentially a whole other avatar when you can wear full body suits. And then, yeah, you're designing stadiums, your entrance music, your video, your dances. That's crazy. Your taunts. That's wonderful. And all that stuff is in game, which typically is stuff that, you know, you and I've dealt with more as an external game thing. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. the content creators in studio are actually doing an internal editor and whatever, but this is all in game. And now you have the public also contributing. So there's like a large community that is contributing created content that they're making on their own and like putting up on a, on effectively a download store. The store doesn't actually require any money or anything. You can just download it, but it's like a, a shared space where people can share their characters. And there I've seen like kind of crazy ones. Like people will build like presidents or they'll build like <laughs> Muppet characters yep. or superheroes and they'll kind of post them up there and people can download them and use them in their game. That's the best, man. Self-expression, user-generated content, right? Just gives your game a whole other tell. You really don't have to build battle passes and season passes and updated content when you give users these tools to kind of build the content for you. So it's super smart. Yeah, I've definitely watched a few streamers. As I was heading into this product, I was like, oh, well, what does that entail? And I watched a couple of people that they have full on YouTube channels where they, for one, they stream like the story mode as they progress through it, but then they create their own story. They use the tools in the game to make a progression for their character. And then they, as part of the kind of voiceover for their YouTube stream, they'll tell the story, like what's going on what's the motivation here? Like what are the stakes? And it's really cool to see them do that. And I'm like, man, that's a pretty cool thing to have available for players. And there's surprisingly a larger number of these content creators that do this stuff with every game. They'll make new versions of the game and they'll tell their own stories and coming in and being able to kind of lead the effort to drive the future of those things is an exciting opportunity. Yeah, it brings two questions to mind. One, it's always surprising to me how as a corporation that I'm sure builds similar types of things, right? Like create a player in NBA 2K is different from create a player in WWE 2K, whatever. And you would think that you guys would talk and share tech and like build each other up. But usually what happens is the tech is super different. It's super proprietary. It only works for the type of game you're building. Yeah, I mean, there needs to be an effort to allow for those type of things to happen if you're going to do that. Most of the time throughout my entire career, you've gotten these in these scenarios where the engine that's being used is so unique for whatever Mm -hmm. game is being made Mm -hmm. that that flexibility isn't there. I've worked in the past with engines like Frostbite and with the Rockstar game engine and with Lumberyard or CryEngine. You work with CryEngine? Yep. 
Oh, shit. And all of those engines are built not as generically as you would mm-hmm. like. They have a very kind of wheelhouse place where they are. Like first-person shooter yeah, or something. it's a first-person shooter and they do it really well. Or, you know, you'll see things like some ability to do some open world, but it's not to the level of Rockstar, mm-hmm. which Rockstar's Their engine was, It was built on open world everything. And so games that are more level-based, such as a Max Payne 3. Yeah are actually just streaming in everything as though it was a Rockstar open world game. They just don't fade up the screen until everything is triggered as loaded. Whereas a in GTA, you'll drop in and the immediate area around you is loaded. But then as you walk around the world, like more of the world is loaded and things like that. That's the biggest thing with open world games. And I guess what separates them, right, is like, how good is your loading? How do you what do we call it, fragment your data or chunkify it. And a lot of these engines came at it from the other side, right? They kind of came from these linear corridor-based or level-based experiences. And then for them to retrofit and be like, okay, now we're going to... Basically, our open world is just a bunch of levels that load together. Or a gigantic level. Or a gigantic level. Yep, like a persistent level with many levels in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Where they get like very clever with how they place their sight lines and buildings, right? So you can't see beyond this mountain or something. So you could just unload that level. Yeah. And a lot of that came out of the groundwork that was the Doom games and the Quake games. Like all of that was built around kind of these corridors and whatever to hide the loading. Because Mm -hmm. as the famous quote goes, we are limited by the technology of our time. Nowadays, we have a lot more powerful technology. And so we can be a little bit more open and it's okay. Now, the problem is with all technology, a content creator is going to fill that hole. Like if you give (laughs) them a little bit more time, they're going to say, oh, well, I can put more stuff in. Or you tell us, oh, don't worry. You don't have to clean up your mess, right? It's just all right. Right. Somebody else will do that. So efficiency sometimes falters in in those those cases. You ever seen that shit where there's like, you're shipping the game and there's a bunch of random stuff near the origin of the world just eating up memory? Oh, yeah, I've debugged that a lot. Uh, so Red Dead, that was one of my things. I, oh, would, I would go there and I would find all these things and then find out where they came from and like then talk to the environment artists and be like, hey, there's a bunch of stuff here. Well, well, what is it needed for? And sometimes it's useful to do that. So, for example, if you're trying to spawn in something for a random event, you can preload all of the things that you want to draw. For an example like Red Dead, you want to draw a wagon that's broken, you want to draw a fire pl- a fire pit, and you want to draw like some horses or whatever that are you know falling over. You can preload all that stuff and then kind of have it at the origin. So if it does draw, like it's underneath the world, no one can see it. And then when you want to display it, you can just pop it over there and you don't get kind of this problem of like, hey, it's trying to draw in the same place that it's mm-hmm. trying to spawn and all that kind of stuff. Now, is that the best option? Probably not. You shouldn't be drawing it if it's not ready yet. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes there are a lot of ways to get at something, which makes it difficult to say like, okay, I'm going to lock down this one way for you to open this door. It's like, no, there's like 15 ways to get beyond that door. Mm-hmm. As an engineer, as a lead engineer, what's your typical day today like? How would you cut up the pie of time spent with designers, time spent managing, time spent coding, time spent with producers or artists? Yeah, what's your typical day like? So it all depends on the size of your team and kind of the urgency at which things need to get fixed. The engineering lead always wants to kind of be coding because they're a coder first, usually. Typically, you'll kind of do a lot more admin stuff that helps free up your reports. So then they can do work. So you'll be the bug triage 
as bugs come in, you would say, okay, well, let me look at this and make sure that it is a bug for us or for some other team. You also do things where you're looking at a larger spectrum of problem as opposed to a narrow focus. For an example, if something is having trouble loading in a game, you might be looking at, well, are there other places where this is not loading as well? Or is it unique to this scenario where we're trying to use it? Or you're looking for kind of nuanced things that aren't as functional as that you wish they were. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, you know, you're supposed to be able to move this slider and then something changes on the character. Well, if I move that slider, like, does it move very, very slowly? Does it move very, very quickly? And you're trying to kind of tease out some of these things that are like, well, it is functional, but it's not as friendly as it could be. And that day-to-day can be unique per kind of company you're at and kind of what your mission statement is for your team. For some companies, the lead engineer is essentially just the person that doles out the bugs. They get uh, this influx and they're like saying, okay, well, you're going to work on this, you're going to work on that. And then depending on the seniority uh, structure of their team, they might also be kind of a mentor uh, to the uh, younger group of, mm-hmm. of developers. Uh, if it's a super senior team, then they may be kind of just a, a coordinator where they're just kind of like, oh, well, you're going to work on this and kind of chunk it over the wall and be like, all right, he's got it. Mm-hmm. And then there's other companies where that lead is now kind of more abstracted from the day-to-day code. There are some leads that don't get to code much at all because they're going to meetings, they're talking with design or art, coordinating all of the desired options, Mm -hmm. and then kind of like saying, okay, this is the priority list for us. This is what we need to finish first and second. And then there's a planning element as well, because if you're in a studio that does agile, there's two-week sprints, and you're like, okay, after this sprint, we're going to get this stuff done. And then you're like coordinating with each contributor to say like, hey, what did you get done? The stuff that you didn't get done can we move it to the next sprint or do we need to move that into a backlog and say like, hey, you know, this actually was downgraded in priority. It's funny you mentioned Agile. I've never been on a game team that does not do Agile or claim that they do Agile. It is a bit of a buzzwordy type thing. And then some of that depends on what your production leadership is. I know that production really has at least for the studios that I've progressed through, they've become more and more friendly to the Agile mindset. But I don't know if you know this, but you and I kind of went through the game industry as Agile was discovered and implemented. That's true. When I first started, there wasn't kind of this Agile thing. It was, it was like, a wonderful. Hey, like, essentially, this thing has to be done before this thing can be done, before that thing yeah. can be done. And there, there definitely was like, hey, we have milestones. And mm-hmm. those milestones had like, these are the things that we need to get done. But there wasn't that like, okay this regimented, like, okay, these are the things that we're specifically focusing on and kind of the the stand-ups and all that kind of stuff. That wasn't as when I first started at all. And as you know, at Rockstar, we never did that. No. Nope. <laughs> we never did any of that. It was None like, okay, you have your bug list and you work through your bug list. My role there at Rockstar, I definitely had a lot of people that were day-to-day kind of coming up to me asking for help. And so I ended up, you know, not really using the bug a list as much mm. because there would be the walk-up things. Oh, and so yeah. I had two lists. I had the walk-up list and then I had the bug list. Eventually I got to a, a cadence where I would kind of do what you do at a uh, butcher shop. I would give people numbers. Take a ticket. Yeah, take a ticket kind of thing. And some of that is also you're triaging it. Like you say like, hey, you know, what's your problem and how urgent is it? Like, hey, I cannot work or whatever. And then I would kind of say like, okay, well, this is my list of things and you're going to fit in right here. And I would mm-hmm. give them a number and say like, okay, this is where you are. 
uh, and I had at some point, uh, some of the content creators would come up to me and say like, Hey, what number would I be? <laughs> and then, you know, I was, I would give them a number like, Hey, you know, I got six things ahead of you or something like that. And they'd say, okay. And if it wasn't like, Hey, I cannot work. Yeah. Then blockers. they would either come back or they would say like, Hey, you know what? I'll write it in an email or I'll make a bug for it or whatever it is. And that helped mitigate a lot of the juggling. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like there is kind of those things that immediately jump to the top of the list yep. uh, where, oh, that, yeah. you know, supersede all of that stuff. And then someone comes over and is like, Hey, I was the number one item and you know, where's my fix? And you're like, well, this thing over here is on fire. So, uh, you know, you have to wait. Rockstar was an amazing place, especially when we came in, because for me, I had probably one year of experience under my belt before I got to Rockstar. I had shipped one game. And so getting to Rockstar, seeing the power of the tools, I really felt like I had a lot of autonomy. There was never, ever any shortage of work, right? You said, right? Bug lists just keep coming. But we were essentially up, it was up to you how you wanted to tackle that load, right? And to them, it was, hey, as long as things are getting done, they're happy. And they would be very in your face the second something wasn't done that they needed done, right? And, and it, it might not even be your fault. It might have just came right then and there, like five minutes before. You didn't see your email and they're in your face. Like, yo, where is this? I need it yesterday, right? After going through that experience, I became super good at balancing like a hundred different things at once, right? And spinning multiple plates. I definitely understand where you're coming from on that. There were a lot of times where there was the negotiation. I have definitely had people come up and say, hey, where's my thing? And I'm like, well, I'm working on this right now. And they're like, why are you working on that? Well, because X. Either they'll say, oh, okay, or whatever. There had been times that were kind of surprised things as well. It's like, hey, this is coming tonight, so we got to have it. And, you know, there is a element of dependence that, you know, you kind of continually going through and checking off the list triggers and people will say, oh, well, obviously he's going to fix it now because he's here. And while a short-term gain is not a long-term benefit, that's that's something that I'm sure both of us experienced with some of the kind of deluge of issues. I've experienced it at other studios as well, where it's just like, they just keep giving you stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, yeah, I can stay or I can do this. And it just hasn't ended up the best when you allow that to happen for too long. And now that you're a lead, curious how you're applying your experience to the way your team operates, right? Like how many reports do you have? How do you manage that? Right now, I'm actively building a team. So I have oh, yeah, you said a that. very small number of reports, but I will be adding more. And when you add those people, you are supporting them in a way to where when you ask them to go do something that is a little out of the ordinary, it's not a problem. Okay. So there, there is a mindset that comes in there for leaders. You want to be able to ask someone to join you in the foxhole, but you can't ask them to do it every day. If you do that every day, then they're just going to get run down with like, well, you know, everything is just blowing up all over the place. There's no real kind of consistency here. There isn't really a plan and it can be very frustrating for people. The thing that leaders should do and I'm trying to do is make it to where when I ask for something out of the ordinary, it isn't the ordinary. I'm asking you to do something, stay late for this, or hey, can you really focus on this problem? Because it's something that is going to get us the benefit that we need, but it's not an everyday thing. I'm balancing that request for your time over the time to fix something. That sounds ideal. I'm curious where you learned that. This is a personal learning thing, actually, because most of the companies I've ever worked at, they just keep giving you more. 
And as I got older and, you know, you add a family and children, like there are moments that actually strike you and mm. you're like, hey, you know what? I really need to focus and do something different here. A anonymous anecdote was I was working at a company and we were working a lot of hours and one of the producer people was hanging out with me and he was working a lot of hours too. One morning I came in and we were kind of just doing the morning banter thing and he relayed this story that I was like, oh, well, that, that actually like struck me as a person. Is this Riccio or Conkler? I said anonymous. I just want to know who it is so I can give them their flowers. Uh, it was Conkler. Shout out to Dave Conkler. I yeah. got to get him on the show, man. Yeah, you do. He, he would be a very interesting person to, to deal with. He's one of the better, one of the best executive producers I've ever worked with. I love that guy. And I would love to work with him again. Did you guys overlap at Blizzard? He never worked at Blizzard. He worked at Activision. He was on the Call of Duty team. Oh, okay. My bad. I knew it was under that umbrella. Yeah. He did show up a couple times at this studio. So as Battle.net, we were hosting Call of Duty. And so he showed up a couple times. So I had lunch with him like once or twice. Nice. Yeah. But what he said was he went home and we go home really late at night, like 2, 3 a.m. Easy. And he had gone home and he found his son splayed out on the countertop, just passed out. And he woke his son up and he's like, hey, you know, why didn't you go to bed? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and he was like, I was waiting for you. I didn't have a child at that point, but I was like, man, I don't want to do that to my kids. Like, I don't want to have them like staying up super late, kind of having these break your heart moments where they're like, I just wanted to see you, but you've been gone so much. Yeah. That was one moment where I was just was like struck by that. And I was like, okay, I need to be aware of what I'm being asked to do. And I need to be more aware of the limits that I would like to impose. As a lead now, I definitely would be more cognizant of that. A lot of leads will kind of take the perspective of, hey, if I can do it, you can do it. Mm -hmm. And that isn't true for everyone. Elon Musk is very famous for kind of sleeping in his office and like always working and all that kind of stuff. But he has the ability to do it mm -hmm. and not necessarily have it affect his general outlook on life. And, and that's something that not everyone can do. I'm with you, bro. I'm a believer in, in lead by example, but that has evolved today. It's not about showing your team that this is how work needs to be done. Follow my example. It's much more creating that two-way communication for me to understand how do I get the best work out of you and then enable that and set up mechanisms that make that a possibility day in, day out versus, hey, do what I do. Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of different personalities that we've dealt with in our careers. There are those people that just, they can't turn it off mm -hmm. and they're just constantly working and, yeah. you know, that's what they love and yeah. they're not happy unless they're doing that. Mm-hmm. And then there's those that like come in, I punch my time clock yep. and at five o'clock or six o'clock, I walk out and I'm done. But it's a tight shift of solid work. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And you know, there have been studies that kind of give you perspective on like, you know, when the work day starts to degrade into like, you're actually causing more problems than you are fixing. Mm -hmm. There are multiple studies that showed that that was a number around 10 hours. Like if you work more than 10 hours on average, yep. statistically speaking, you are causing more problems into the product than if you say, okay, I'm going to cut it off at this time and come back at it fresh after you know sleeping and having a moment. Facts. Yeah. 10 hours straight for sure. I want to go back 
There's a lot that I don't know about you, Jay. Where is home for you? Where did you come in? How did you even get into games? I am from a very, very small town in Texas. The town is called Weimar. If you've heard of it, you're one of the 50 people in the world that has. How big is the town? The town is was struggling to be at 2,000 people when I lived there. It dipped down to about 1,800 now. We have two full-on stoplights that blink, you know, yellow, green, red. And then we have one blinky light that blinks yellow or red, depending on the direction you're coming from. We are on Interstate 10, which has been a lifeline for the town because we have truckers that stop and things like that. Uh, it's halfway between Houston and San Antonio on Interstate 10. So people generally migrate to those cities? Oh, yeah. Houston has kind of grown out a long way. San Antonio has more grown towards Austin on the I-35 corridor, which you're experiencing in Austin. You know what I-35 is? Yep, yep. That's kind of where we are. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And to be honest, there's not a lot of access to some of the things that you would get in the city. My parents were always encouraging me to learn things, and my grandparents were always telling me to learn things. But I didn't actually start programming until I went to college. It was late 80s, early 90s. I started to show interest in things like computers. And my dad and my mom were both kind of encouraging technology. Mm -hmm. Like they saw the value in it. And so there was like, okay, well, we're going to get a family computer. And of course I was like, well, what games can I get? Yep. We had a, uh, a 386. The games on it were games that you had to kind of convert into DOS mode. So you couldn't run Windows 3.1. You had to run DOS. Yep. And then you had to flip some of the drivers on the audio device. So then it would play through the sound blaster audio card creative sound blaster oh yeah that's something that my mom would do and i didn't really care about it because i was like give me the games like that level of kind of fiddling with the machine i was not not as interested in that's pretty awesome that both of your parents your mother and your father were tech savvy back in those days when like computers were not everywhere my mom and dad i, I was their it you know what i'm saying like they didn't know how to operate those things yeah i mean a little bit more backstory on that is my dad actually has a degree in electrical engineering oh well, there you go. My mom has a degree in chemistry and she became a school teacher. For all my sciences, I had her. So shout out to Miss J. So he always tinkered with stuff. Mm. Like at one point he was holding down five jobs when I was a kid, like really young, like I wasn't able to walk or anything. But one of the jobs was like he was working at a television repair shop and he was fixing televisions and fixing anything that had like a processor board in it, that type of stuff. We had that stuff around the house, like just you know, old processor boards, vacuums and stuff like that. So it wasn't something that was hidden from me in terms of like dealing with kind of technology, mm -hmm. but it was something where it was like, I wanted to do the thing with it as opposed to like mess with the internals. Like I wanted to play games or I wanted to watch a show if it was a VHS player or something like that. And I didn't really care about how it worked. I just mm -hmm. wanted it to work. So I can start to see games on the 386. It was already kind of set up for you. So you didn't have to figure out the instructions or how to set it all up. You said that you didn't get into programming until you got to college. Through high school, I started to get more interested in the more IT hardware side of things. Mm -hmm. And our school got a grant from the government uh, to build out a computer lab. So it was like, well, would you like to build the computers? And I was like, okay. And I would set them up and get them working. And I started to feel that inkling of like liking the internals of how stuff worked together. Okay. And I would like make Frankenstein machines. Like I would like open it up, add extra RAM, add more hard drives, you know, just random stuff just to see what it would do. Now I know there's a lot more into just like, instead of just plug and play, there's like more things to do. 
But at the time, it was like, okay, well, what can I do and get it to work? And like, mm-hmm. shove, shove more RAM in, shove another floppy drive in, shove like more hard drive space in just to see what it would do. It was something that actually became very easy for me to do. I could visualize it in my head how the pieces fit together. Okay. And it was easy for me to understand it. So when I was thinking of like, what am I doing in college? It was like, oh, well, I like this. You know, it's simple for me to understand. Like, why don't I do computers? I had never been really taught a programming language. So my senior year of high school in Texas, they have a thing. It's an academic competition series. So effectively, it's like um, sports competition, but for academics. Okay. And they instituted a programming one, like my senior year. And, you know, because I had been messing with all the computers or whatever, you know, people were like, oh, well, you should do the programming thing. And me and my best friend were like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. And so they're like, okay, well, the language for this is C++. Damn. So here's a book, go learn it. So me and my friend were messing around with stuff, but we didn't know what we were doing. Like we didn't really read the book very closely. We were just fooling around with computers and making them like count for hours on end, you know, like, you know incrementing a, in, an integer or something over and over again. If you were anything like me in high school, the only real books I read were comic books, man. So you can give me yeah. a, a book that says, hey, here's the meaning of life. And I'm just like, I'm going to skim through it, try to see if I can get anything I need and then just put it aside. I will admit I did not like school at all. That is kind of the dichotomy of my existence. I love learning. I love being taught new things. And when I ask someone about themselves or their history, I am genuinely interested in learning about you, your experience, and your history. That's true. I'll corroborate. But I hated school so much. <laughs> I, I did well enough. Like I wasn't like a, you know, a dropout kind of guy, but I wasn't the star student. Mm. It just never really interested me as much as you know, my school teacher mother would like. What happened with the competition? So we sat in the room and I was doing C++ and like it felt easy to understand. Like I could understand what was going on, like the syntax of the language, how you construct things. It became kind of the same kind of feeling as putting together those Frankenstein computers. Mm. It's like, oh, I take a little bit of this here and put a little bit of that there and I could understand it. Now, I didn't realize that until like right before I took the test. So I didn't do well on the test. But after I was done, I was like, yeah, you know, this is kind of interesting. And maybe I'd like to learn more about it. I then was like looking at kind of universities and what do they have and things like that. And at the time, there weren't a whole lot of programs that were just like, hey, you know, you're doing computer programming the whole time. Well, computer science is a popular curriculum at most engineering heavy schools. It is, but it's also very difficult to get into. And this actually was uh, Texas A&M University is oh, where, yeah. I, where I tried to get in. And engineering at Texas A&M University is very highly lauded. So it was very difficult to get into the computer science program. What I got into was the computer engineering program, which is much more of the hardware kind of interactions of things. It was the same thing for me at my state school in New York. I went computer engineering because... I don't know, those were the buzzwords I would hear all the time. And so I'm sure that worked in my favor because it was a lot less popular compared to comp sci. I started there and my whole like problem with school kicked in again. And I wasn't able to get to the things I was interested in fast enough. Yeah, they're going to give you all kind of the low level foundational stuff. It wasn't even like I was doing computer stuff. It was like, okay, you're doing all your Englishes. You're doing all your kind of maths. Yeah, discrete math. You're doing your other things that aren't kind of working on these computer things that you're like, hey, that's what my degree is. So why am I not working on that? And they don't look anything like games. Yeah, they don't uh, at all. And 
I took a C++ class in my first semester, or maybe it was my second semester, and I did well in there. One of the things that really kind of triggered me as like, hey, maybe I should do programming instead of computer engineering was our class is teacher was stuck in India due to some sort of visa problem. Mm -hmm. And so for the first like half of the semester, we were getting taught by the TAs. Which I'm sure were not good teachers. They were not, but they were, you know, moving at a pace to where I knew what was going on. Like all Uh. of the homework they gave you, like I could do like real fast. Like I was able to do it and it just made sense. It was interesting because the teacher came back after a while when they got their visa thing figured out. And he just came in and just started teaching the curriculum as though we were caught up to where he would be. And so he came in and the first thing he started doing was pointers. And we had not been exposed to pointers yet. God. And he was just like rattling off stuff and like, hey, what you do this and you do that. And eventually one guy in the class raised his hand and said, what are you talking about? (laughs) And What is this asterisk thing? And me sitting in the class... I was following him. Like I understood what he was doing and I don't know why it triggered in my brain because I had just been doing random like programming on my own and I knew that he was going a lot faster than the TAs, but I was like, oh, well, this kind of makes sense. I understand what you're kind of doing, but everyone else was kind of lost. A lot of people struggle with pointers and memory and dereferencing, right? Like, hey, is this a copy of the thing or am I looking at the actual value of the thing and why is it not changing? Yeah, Mm. that that is something that's definitely part of the programming test too. Oh, yeah. You go with like, well, what is a pointer and how do you use it and Uh those type of things. Those syntax tests are kind of jerks, right? Like they're throwing things at you that a compiler would catch right away that you wouldn't even have to think twice about. That's how they're all taught, right? Like they try to make sure that you know this. That's one of the things that I think is maybe a little too heavily weighted nowadays because we have tools that tell you, hey, don't do this or, you know, this this is not going to compile. But that was kind of the programming tests that I had were those kinds of oriented things where you would fix up something on paper Mm -hmm. and then make sure that you had the syntax right on paper. Yep. But anyway, given that I was, did fairly well in that class, I got, I think, a B or something in that class. So That's awesome. That was something that was like, man, I did really well in there, even though it was like this mad rush to the end. And it really kind of drew my interest. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I should have done computer science. Then I was like, okay, well, what if I transfer? So I went and talked to the, you know, the advisor and whatever. And they were like, well, you can't transfer to that degree because your other classes aren't high enough in GPA or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So you can't actually move over there because they require a certain level. I ended up leaving Texas A&M. Like I finished my first year. And then after that, I was like, yeah, I'm not interested in this. I'm done. I remember the moment my dad sitting out with me on the porch, drinking a Dr. Pepper. And he goes, so what are you going to do? And I had spent some time and I was like looking at other programs. And I was like, oh, where is this school that doesn't offer a four-year degree? They offer a two-year associate, but it's very focused on doing the work. Like it's more a trade school kind of setup. And that school was uh, Texas State Technical College, uh, which had a business-oriented programming class, as well as a computer hardware program. And, you know, the, the ego gets hurt when you don't really get to do the thing that you wanted to do. Absolutely. So I was like, well, I can do everything. And so I went in and signed up for both degrees and tried to do both degrees at the same time. That was difficult, but I also wanted to get out of there as fast as possible. So every semester, including the summer semester, I loaded up my docket with every hour that I could get. So you double majored? I did double major. And at one point, I got a job as a pizza delivery driver. And 
At the same time, I was taking five different programming languages because they taught many different ones as part of this program. And that was not fun. I had tests where I actually would get the right answer, but I would switch the language and syntax. A coding language is still another language, right? You're training your brain to think in this world or syntax, and it's going to get confused if you're learning things all at the same time. It was tough. My teacher was a really good teacher. Shout out to Rodney Ortico. He was a really good teacher. He really was excited about doing programming, and it helped inspire me to do it even more. He was also cognizant enough to recognize the strain that I had put myself under. He saw that I was coming to class kind of extra tired. Uh, I was doing all the work, so my, my academics weren't suffering, but I was tired and I wasn't as energetic and things like that. And then one time I delivered pizza to him and he answered the door and he was like, oh, this is why you have been showing up to class kind of tired and things like that because you're, you're doing this job as well on top of, you know, doing the crazy workload that you're doing. And, you know, that, that was a moment that was very poignant in that it showed that someone cared and I wasn't just a number for the school. Like they were like, hey, your well-being is something that we care about. And so it kind of stuck with me. And I became friendly with him as well as another teacher named Susie Watkins, who shout out to her as well, who actually got me to switch into the gaming world. I was about done with my degree, my two degrees at Texas State Technical College. And she had worked at a company that did GBA games. Game Boy Advance. I was like, you made games? How did you do that? How did you get into that? And it was like, I barraged her with a bunch of questions. And, you know, she gave me the, you know, well, you know, this is what it kind of fell into this, or this is what I did. And so I ended up finding out that there were colleges that actually specialized in teaching games. And at the time there were two, there was Full Sail and there was DigiPen up in Seattle, Full Sail being in Orlando, Florida area. So I was like, oh, well, that's really cool. I want to do games. All of my projects in school were essentially game oriented. Like I did a whole like English project where I was like pitching a merged kind of game. There was like two games that I really liked playing and merged them into one. Uh -huh. And I was like pitching it as part of a presentation that I had to do in that English class. It was like a, I don't know, it's a public speaking type thing or something. I don't know. What was the game? It was a game called uh, Championship Manager, which has now moved to Football Manager as a name and FIFA. Oh, so it's like the manager mode, like the team manager it mode. It is, but it's much, much deeper. Like those <laughs> of you out in the audience that have played championship manager or football manager know that it is quite an elaborate game. And FIFA had a manager mode, but the depth for this game is way, way beyond FIFA. Like they have leagues in there from all over the world. They have multiple lower tiers in all of the, all of the leagues and you simulate like all of the games you simulate you can set up tactics in the game and you you're essentially a manager but you can buy and sell players and there's a lot of like media interaction and there's a lot of stuff in that game i still play that game i still play the newer versions of that game it's one of those things where it's kind of a turn-based game so it mm -hmm. makes it to where it's a little easier for you to click it and then walk away and do something else and come back it's a game that just draws me in because i'm building my own story in my mind so Susie Watkins is the reason you found out about Full Sail. Yes. And during my final project, and I had been inspired by her, I was like, you know what? I'm going to have a degree in computer science. Let me just try and get to a game company. 
And at the time, there was the Age of Empire studio that was in Dallas area. That studio no longer is there, I don't believe, but they did Age of Empires. And Age of Empires was a game that I played a lot. And so I was like, oh, well, I'd love to work with them. Uh, it's Ensemble Studios, I think. Ensemble, there we go. Thank yeah. you. I was racking my brain. I was like, Google, yeah. what the hell is it? I was like, oh, well, I can obviously get a job over there. I'm a computer scientist person. I can program a computer. And so I emailed them and was like, hey, or I'm about to graduate and I'd like to know like what opportunities you all, you all have available, you know, what kind of things can I do? What kind of things are you looking for in a candidate? And they basically sent me back, hey, we're looking for, do you have 3D experience with DirectX? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, no, you know, I've done business software. Like there's no DirectX in business software. I was a little disheartened by that because I was like, well, obviously I can, I can figure it out. I mean, problem solving and whatever. But that seemed to be at the time, a lot of the gold standard was, do you have experience with DirectX? Every position, gameplay, audio, whatever. It was like, do you have experience with DirectX uh, or OpenGL? That led me to try and do it myself. I was like, oh, I'll buy a book and I'll try and figure out DirectX on my own. And as I was doing it, I was like, you know, this is all in my free time. I'm working a job as well as doing this. I really would like to have a more focused kind of time for this. And so because of Suzy, I had kind of looked around as well at those schools and looked at DigiPen and looked at Full Sail. And oddly enough, the thing that led me towards Full Sail was the shorter length that you had to do. So Full Sail was offering a two-year degree that you could do and I think 15 months is what mm -hmm. they called it. Yeah, the associate's 15. The bachelor's was like 21. Well, so they didn't even have bachelor back then. Yeah, you were OG. Oh, yeah, I'm way old. And then I looked at DigiPan and it was a four-year school. And expensive. And, and expensive. And I was like, man, this didn't work out for me before when I went to Texas A&M. Like, I don't know if I want to do it again. Plus, I'm now moving to the Northeast uh, where you know, I'm much farther away from my family and so if it fails, like it's going to be really tough. Yeah. Like Orlando, the flight is like an hour and change. Yeah. Well, I drove. Well, it's drivable. It, it is drivable. Yeah. Texas to Seattle is a tough drive. That's a big of a drive. There's mm. a mountain range in the way or something. Yep. 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 My girlfriend at the time went with me to go visit the school. We flew out and visited the school and we wandered around. And as you know, Full Sail, they have a lot of pomp and circumstance that they do. There, there weren't as many buildings as when you were there. Did you just have the one side? It was one main building, and then they had just taken over part of that strip mall where the Wendy's was. Yeah. They, they had just oh. taken over just part of that. Oh, my God, that Wendy's, bro. Oh, yeah. We hit up that Wendy's all the time. <laughs> 99 cent nuggets. Yep. The school, I did the tour, and they were showing me around. And at the time, there was you know this this mystique of like, hey, you know, one of the creators of D&D is one of the teachers here. And- <sighs> Shout out to so, Dave Arneson. Yeah, Dave Arneson was a teacher there and they were like really hyping it up. And I have to admit, I wasn't really that d and because I didn't have a group of friends to play with. Me neither. Me neither. They were, they were talking about this guy and I was just like, yeah, I mean, show me the games. And there were people that were like, I have to go to this school because of him. Yeah, the great recruiting tool. They were definitely hyping that up and they had a lot of the very nice looking classrooms and things like that. And they, you know, gave you a laptop to work on and all this stuff. Well, cutting edge and modern. That was the biggest difference I noticed when I went to visit it. You know, after we were done, my girlfriend at the time looked at me and said, if you don't come here, you're crazy. Wow. She told you that. 
Yeah. I mean, I was on the fence because it was a thing where, you know, I never really thought I would leave Texas to go somewhere, like to get a job or whatever. I would figure that I would go to Austin or Houston or San Antonio. You know, that's normally kind of the extent of the, the bubble of life mm-hmm. in, in my area is usually you kind of go to those cities. And so I was like, oh, well, you know, what do you think? And she's like, well, you have to come here. What was it that gave that impression? There were two things. One was that I had been talking to her before about like, I want to make games. But then as we were there in the school, they were hitting all the right notes saying like, we're focused on making games. We want people to make games. And this class, we teach you programming. And this class, we teach you how to do the graphics stuff. And this class, we teach you about how to set up a story and we help you with your resumes and all this kind of stuff that was like checking all the boxes of like, man, that's going to get me that job at Ensemble easily. Yeah, dude. Like you everything know. they told you you needed to know, Full Sail was going to teach you. Right. And so it was like, okay, well, makes sense. But by this point, you had like how many degrees under your belt? I had only one because I stopped two credits short of getting my second because I burned myself out. And that was the first time I burned myself out. Hey. You thought you would have learned. Yeah, I would have. I thought so. You know, it's it's one of those things where I look back and I go, well, you know, maybe I should have stayed and done it. But I think the decisions that I've done in my life had led me to where I am. Mm-hmm. And so I can't argue with the outcome. Absolutely, bro. I want to unpack burning out. How do you know you've burnt out? And then what results from that? So for me, it was a lack of motivation. Mm, you just drained. Basically, I would go into school, do my programming classes, then go home and program more. Oh, yeah. And, you know, then go go to work and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I would do it all the time and I just couldn't stop. Like it was just, I was interested in it and whatever I was doing, I was like either fiddling with the thing that they had in class or trying to make up my own things. Like I started like looking at the games that I liked and trying to replicate systems in there to say like, hey. You know, uh, tic-tac-toe, for example, like I want to make tic-tac-toe or I want to make solitaire. And so I'd kind of try and do those type of things as I was learning. Uh, And then, you know, it just became a thing where I was doing it all the time. And eventually it just was too heavy. Doing the homework for five different programming languages, doing the lab work for five different programming languages, doing the home stuff that I was doing, plus working and then doing any kind of gaming at all and trying to hold down a relationship with a girlfriend at the time. Something had to give. Something had to give. And I lost kind of my motivation to do that extra stuff. Like yeah. I would do my classwork because that was kind of my job. Like my job was to do school, but all of the extra stuff, the things that I was the most passionate about and the things that were like, I want to do this for a job. I just didn't want to do it anymore. That's it, man. As you're talking about this thing, it's hitting home. I empathize with you 100%. Right. Like the thing that excites you and motivates you, it's a complete 180. It's like, fuck this. It it doesn't have the same effect anymore because you overdid it. Yeah. That's something that I didn't learn the lesson from the first time, (laughs) but I definitely learned this lesson (laughs) from the second time. There are those of us who are much more thick skulled and it takes a few times for the message and lesson to hit home. And that message will be more than happy to keep punching you in the face until it finally sinks in. What? happened on the second time? Well, the second time I was employed to do a job. Oh, that is very different. I had no motivation to do that job. And so Mm. now this is affecting your livelihood. I never got to a point where my performance was degrading to the point where kind of 
management stepped in and was like, hey, what's wrong? But you felt it. My own motivation was just not there. Like I wasn't as passionate and I wasn't as interested in doing all of the things that I had done leading into that. Were you hourly? During the second time? Yeah. Salary plus overtime. So damn, Jay. <laughs> You're opening up some wounds, right? Like, yeah, it's just like it, it can hurt. But the thing is, is you need to be honest about that hurt. That's something that I've never really been good at. I've always been very private. I've always been very guarded. I've always kind of had that, for lack of a better analogy, like the kid that gets picked on at the high school in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like I was always the guy that got shoved in the locker. Did I ever get shoved in the locker? No. But you feel like that. Like mm-hmm. You feel like you're not part of the crowd. You're not cool enough. You're not part of this kind of culture that is like revered, like the party culture or whatever. So being honest about, hey, I don't feel okay, or I don't have this motivation anymore is scary. And so admitting it to other other people is really hard. There's a lot of times where you deal with things on your own that you don't really show with other people. And it makes it to where sometimes people that aren't necessarily as engaged with you Mm -hmm. don't see that in you. And it becomes a point where you get more isolated because they're like, oh, well, I don't want to hang out with that person. They're just a, they're a Debbie Downer all the time. Yeah. But in reality, like you're really struggling with stuff and you're just not talking about it. Yeah, man. I grew up, you know, I had my basic needs taken care of, but definitely felt poor financially. And so being in a situation where it's like, here's more money to do more work. To me, it was like, oh my gosh, I have no business complaining. Like I need this money and here they are giving me more of it for my time. But yeah, it's a bit of a drug. I never did without, like mm-hmm. you, like you're saying, like, mm-hmm. I never did without. But when you're looking at your history, you're like, you know what? We weren't mm-hmm. that well off. And mm-hmm. my parents admitted to me more recently that we weren't that well off, but I never really felt it as a kid because yeah, never felt it. Either you don't know any better or the person that got whatever thing that you would like to have, you rationalized it as like, oh, well, I can get that later. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, my parents would save and get stuff. So there was like, oh, well, I'll save up and get that. Yeah. I had my Nintendo, had my game systems. I didn't have a Nintendo. I, I didn't have a lot of the game systems, but a friend of mine did. You had a sweet PC. Well, <laughs> sweet, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> it had a turbo button, so you knew it went yeah, fast. Yeah, dude. Overclock that sucker. Yeah, but... It was a thing where, you know, I never knew the actual perspective of where we were kind of in that financial realm. And and that's a great place to be, right? Like the little yeah. bubble of just like, hey, this is my normal and life is good. Yeah. And there wasn't any kind of like, we're not going to eat if, yes. or, you know, we're not going to, we don't have power if, uh, or we don't have clean water if. Ba- so, basic needs are met. Yeah. And I was, I was very lucky to have that, but there definitely was a hey, everyone else had a lot more things than me. And, you know, I I learned that a little later and I, I that perspective a little later. I was watching something with Minecraft dude, Notch. Yeah, Notch. He's on the other extreme, right? Like, here's enough money so that you never have to worry about money ever again. And he ended up in a situation where he felt alone, right? Yeah. Like, the money put him in a space that not a lot of people could relate to. He's still his same self, you know, looking to make the same connection he used to make online and share his thoughts with people. And But they essentially canceled him and dismissed him. Like, hey, man, you have no place to feel sad or complain. You're a billionaire. How dare you? And and that's crazy, right? He's, you know, he's still trying to make connections the same way he did by building Minecraft. But hey, man, that's another conversation that 
I can sum up by saying, always know your why. Why is it that you do what you do? And for us, you know, we're on the other end of that spectrum. Yeah. But still, to be like, the money no longer motivated you, neither did the work. It was just yeah. overdone. Yeah. And at the time when I was doing that, I had a girlfriend, a different girlfriend than the one that told me to go to Full Sail, but I wanted to spend time with her. I wanted to see her. And like my priorities shifted a little bit because it wasn't just, oh, I'm going home to my kind of communal apartment with you know my roommates. It's like, no, I want to spend time with her. So that made you start addressing like, how long am I at work? Like, how late am I staying? And you started missing out on things uh, on occasion. Like she would call me and be like, hey, me and a few of the friends from her work are going to have dinner. Would you like to come? And I'm like, I can't. Or, hey, we're going to go to St. Patty's Day party. Mm -hmm. Can you come? And I'm like, I can't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it started to kind of be like, well, what am I doing here? Like, why am I here by myself wishing to be with someone else? Yeah. And so it. It changed perspective and I was heading into a space where I did end up burning out again. Like it was difficult to get up and get in to work, but there was that motivation there of like, Hey, you know, you have to deliver because that affects your money. That affects your ability to provide for yourself, like food on the table and rent. You also had a pretty key role on the team. So my role at Rockstar was one of two tools engineers that were supporting the local team of 300 and the remote kind of extra worldly team of 600 plus because mm -hmm. we had North helping us and we had uh, New England helping mm -hmm. us and we had, I think some Toronto uh, in there, Toronto and I think QA or someone in uh, New, York New York was helping yeah. us as well. Mm -hmm. And so we had all these studios that needed to work with our systems and you know, they've, they've now shifted, but at the time, uh, San Diego studio had its own version of the rockstar game engine, its own version of the, uh, tools to build content and to produce content. So all of that stuff was kind of be supporting, being supported by myself and another engineer. Yeah. I think the role modern day is referred to as like a build engineer, really. Maybe that was part of my role at other companies. I have definitely been taken aback by the specializations and breakdowns of the role that I actually did at Rockstar, which are like five different roles. Yeah. So there was like the build engineer, there's the tools programmer, there's the pipeline engineer, mm -hmm. which is dealing with kind of the content. And then there's also a resource engineer, which deals with kind of translating the created content into the stuff that gets shipped on disk. All of those were part of my job. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to other companies that are a little bit more split up and there's like, oh, well, this guy just deals with the builds or this guy just deals with the tools. Well, I did both of those jobs. Like, you know, <laughs> Must be nice to just have yeah. one focus. Yeah. That is also kind of a luxury item that some studios don't have. Like mm -hmm. in the smaller studios, you start wearing those multiple hats. So it wasn't a thing that I was not used to. What was some of the ways that you were able to kind of motivate yourself? What was some of those interactions with maybe some other coworkers that kind of like reinvigorated you, right? And kept you going. As many Marines will say, it's the person next to you being in the foxhole with you that motivates you to move forward. I was lucky enough, but also kind of had the problem of there were people around me that were in the same kind of boat. There were several engineers that I worked with that were kind of there all the time. And they were familiar, fam they were friendly 
to me at the office. And, you know, there was one engineer that we had that it was like a, a joke where, okay, tonight you're going to stay and he would go home early and then tomorrow he'll stay and then I'll go home early. And, you know, we had little kind of camaraderie banter around that. Those are the people that made me kind of be able to keep going and had mm-hmm. the motivation because I didn't want to let them down. That's what I was going to say. On that team, on that product, a big part was that band of brothers feeling, right? For better or for worse, there was a lot of us in the trenches. You could say definitely depending on each other, but also not wanting to let each other down, you know, and trying to all work towards making the best product you can make. A lot of companies are trying to instill that. They're trying to create that scenario. And there, there is a fine line there for leadership to walk. Because you yes. want to create that camaraderie because you get great communication or great collaboration out of like, hey, we have a shared goal. We're all working towards things and I trust you to work hard and you trust me to work hard. But there's also like just throwing more and more work at you and not letting you take a breath. Yes. Some companies don't do it very well. Some companies do it a lot better. I don't think there is a company that does it perfect yet. Mm-hmm. But there is a onus on leadership to understand that and to progress towards making it as good as possible. And that's knowing the trade-offs, like knowing like when I ask you to come do this thing, to stay late, like you will do it, but it's not because I'm telling you to, it's because you want to support the work that I'm doing because I'm supporting the work that you're doing. I love it, Jay. We come back around full circle to the lessons learned that you bring into your leadership style today, many, many years later. Right, trying yeah. to create an environment that's conducive to that mythical work-life balance and games thing and leaving the industry better than when we got in. So my wife is a uh, cardiac ICU nurse mm-hmm. and they take a Hippocratic Oath. And essentially what that boils down to is a simple phrase, do no harm. And so as an engineer, I take that as well, like do no well, harm. Like when I do something, make a change to something, it doesn't bring down the product. It makes it to where it is functional and running. And while it may not be the final thing that you want, like there may be bugs in it, it does not cause catastrophic failure. Okay. So this is just your self-imposed oath as an engineer. I mean, I've definitely read other books where kind of people have alluded to kind of like having that professionalism around you. And that's something that is interesting as a debate in the programming space, especially in games, because the terminology is more around, well, I'm a hacker or I'm a programmer or whatever. It's move fast, right? Move fast, break things. Or I'm an engineer. But in general, we should be striving to be professionals at our job. And that for many other jobs entails, you know, some of those certifications and things, but there's also kind of a mindset that comes with it. You know, when you're when you're professional at your job and you're doing your job, when you say something is going to get done, you work to make it get done. If it doesn't get done, you say, hey, it didn't get done, but here's why. When you are trying to communicate with someone about what they're looking for, you're respectful of what they're asking for, you're taking in kind of what their expectations are, and then you're honest with them about kind of results like there's there's a lot of meme worthy things where it's like hmm. the the production side is saying oh yeah yeah we got this done and the engineer sitting there going like it's gonna take me four years to do this and you know so there is a professionalism that needs to come in when you do that and as an engineer i've tried to strive for that professionalism and not all engineers do that it's more a personal thing but it is something that allows me to build trust across different disciplines much faster Because I am able to say, like, I deliver this and it actually gets done. Or I say, hey, 
It didn't work out. Here's why. Let me work with you to make it to where you can get some of what you want, or I can tell you this is the time frame when this thing can be available. That's the best thing in a teammate, right? Just constant communication, helping us figure out the expectations, what's going to be delivered, and specifically a value in an engineer, right? Someone whose work kind of enables a big portion, if not the entire game, to come to fruition. Yeah. And that is something that's a little strange as well, is a lot of the engineers that work on projects don't aren't kind of touted as the flashy like nameplates. Like you'll have a lot of designers that either get kind of the flashiness or certain programmers that do a specific thing. If you say John Carmack in the gaming world for programming, like you really know, oh, that guy, like Mm -hmm. he is a name. Map a face. Yeah. And you know who he is, you know, kind of his contribution, but that isn't always the case. And there are a lot of engineers that are very talented that can, that contribute to, you know, every product every day. Yeah. And so something like a, Slack, for example, has engineers that could, that contribute to it. And those engineers aren't kind of front and center of like, oh, they're super awesome. It's like, no, the product is there. And internally, they may be getting kind of kudos, but they don't kind of, as you would say, run the red carpet and get the star lifestyle. If I haven't told you, Jay, I value you as an engineer and as a teammate for the work we went through on Rockstar, getting Red Dead one out the door. What's one of your fondest memories of Full Sail? I think Final Project. Oh, yeah. Would you have three months? Yeah. So my team, we were a little bit young and naive, I want to say. Hey, we all were. All of us. You probably bit off more than you could chew. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So we decided to make an RTS. Okay. That's doable. And we decided to do it in DirectX, which at the time was not part of the curriculum. OpenGL was. DirectX was not. Oh, shit. Okay, yeah, because when I went through, I got both. But if you're telling me you didn't even have it as a class. Yeah, we didn't have it as a class. It was only OpenGL. Why? Was it the input? Was it the rendering? It just wasn't there. Like, they didn't have it. No, no, but I'm saying, why did you want to make it in DX? Because of that email that I had gotten back from Ensemble. Ensemble. That was like, we want DirectX experience. Can't leave this school without learning DX. And when we looked at other jobs out there on the web, they always said DirectX experience. So we're like, okay, well, we're going to get this. Like the whole team saw that and the whole team was like, yeah, we're going to get DirectX experience. You convinced them. Now, I don't know if I convinced them. They just saw that that was what the jobs were posting. Even for the jobs they wanted, they saw yeah, that they needed. They're, they're like, it was weird. Like the team came together and we immediately were kind of a team. Like there wasn't anyone that was like arguing over like, oh, should we do this or should we do that? It was just like, nope, we're together and we're working together and we're a team. And that were was you it. assigned the team? No, not for final project. We had our roles already. It was like, you know, you're going to do the AI. What was you're your role? Do that. I did the animation system and some other miscellaneous rendering things. Okay. And I dealt with, all of all things, the content creators. <laughs> so I was like stepping into that world right away. Yeah. But we did an RTS. And one thing that I really like is the presentation day. So you come out and you present your product and you talk about what you did and you kind of have a script that you follow, that kind of thing. And what was very cool about ours was the teachers had seen what we were doing. Like we were making an RTS and they knew that that was more complex than what we should have, but they saw all the progress we were making. Mm-hmm. Like in this game, we had formations for the characters and multiple formations. We had a dynamically created terrain Shit. that would draw a river 
in the terrain. So it would like use a algorithm to draw a river across the terrain. It would then populate that river with bridges so you could get across and create choke points. And we had audio and we had a full menu system and we had a full campaign. Like we had a campaign where you were taking over little sections of the world. What was your motivation? Was it like StarCraft? No, actually, it was all the historical RTSs. So things like uh, Age of Empires. Uh, and yeah, you, you're really trying to go to Ensemble. Yeah, well, it felt like it. <laughs> so we were doing this and the TA staff was seeing us do it. And they were like really kind of hyping us up around this, around Full Sail. Like they were like, man, like other classes were being told about the what we were doing. And so on presentation day, uh, one of the team members' dad came and said like, hey, I wanted to help you guys, you know, kind of be a team, blah, blah, blah. And he had made us shirts that had the logo of the game on it. And it was like, we had collared shirts with the logo of the game on it, like button down shirts. And it was like, man, we're actually making a studio here. It felt like so cool. Uh, and then presentation came and that room was packed. Like every other class had adjourned early to come to our presentation. I think they even had a tour group that they brought in. It was like packed. So like what, 200 people? Something like that. It, it, well, yeah. so the room wasn't that big. It was like, there were seating for maybe 70, 80, because it wasn't a auditorium setup. Yeah, it, was standing it was just a large room. Corners, I'm sure. They had everyone standing. They had people sitting in front of the first row. It was definitely a fire hazard. What was the name of your team? What was the name of the project? Uh, so our, our team was called TSB Games. And the project that we did was called Liege. Okay. And okay. I don't know if it ever made any sort of notoriety beyond this this particular day, but we presented our thing and we had what I felt was a great presentation. Like we had a couple things that didn't work out exactly, but it was a really cool project. And then we said, Hey, you know, thank you everybody or whatever. And then everyone clapped and it was like, Oh man, this is amazing. Uh, and then kind of a large section of the room left. And then they did the other presentations. <laughs> so it really, so, so we started out the gate and it was like, we were the headliner Oh man. and then everybody kind of trickled out after that. They fucked it, it was up. Like, you was guys like, had man, to close. We did well. Damn. Uh, so that was definitely the coolest moment. Yeah. Jeez, man. I didn't have that. I, I did. I closed my final presentation. And as you tell your story, I'm coming to find out you actually want to be the opener. I guess the opener well, that opens strong. The opener that opens well. Like I, I, we showed well, and that definitely helped kind of the experience. I, mm -hmm. I think they were are showing the tour group that may have shown up was also kind of like, hey, they're trying to come to the school, so they're trying to show you what Final Project is. That's the best. Uh, but you know, having other classes like say like, no, we're gonna go see what these guys had done mm -hmm. was really kind of cool. So you drop the mic, you graduate out of full sale and set sail literally into the game industry. How the hell did you break in? You know, I, I would like to think that, you know, oh, well, I had these contacts already at Ensemble and I would just like call them up and they're like, yeah. Oh, yeah, here's a job. Yeah. Did you, did you hit them up as soon as I, you graduated, I before you graduated? I, I did apply, but they never got back to me. But one of the things I did, I did this exercise that coming out of school or when you are kind of in the middle of school, you can do, which is I took all the games that I really loved playing. Luckily, at that point, my game library had gotten bigger, but I started collecting all of those games, flipping them over, looking at the studios that they came from, mm -hmm. eliminating studios from places that I didn't want to go or didn't think I could go. 
because I had several like European based studios and I was like, oh, well, I can't go to Europe. So flipped over the boxes, looked at those studios, then went to their websites and started kind of perusing the website. Back then, the recruiting mechanism wasn't as prevalent as it is now. Now everyone has a career section. Everyone has like a resume dump email address or something like that. Meaning when you go to a company website, like if you were to go to EA.com back in the day, they were probably just talking about their games and how to buy them. There wasn't like a come work for us. Yeah, there wasn't as pronounced come work for us. Uh, so one of the companies advertised on their site an internship program. Okay. And so I got in through the internship program. That is something that more studios have now, even when you're in school. I definitely have been a mentor for an intern at one of my jobs where they were a sophomore in college, like they hadn't even graduated yet. And it was interesting because they had done multiple internships before. So they had things on their resume, like they had done JBL, which is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory from NASA, and they wow. had done an internship at Google. And I was like, man, your resume is better than mine. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. was like, dang. And they hadn't even graduated yet. So internships are a great way to kind of get your feet wet. Uh, some internships do focus on various pieces of game making, whether it's tools or graphics or servers or gameplay. So you can also get a feel for like what you like doing mm -hmm. without having to kind of do that. Well, I got this job and now I'm stuck here. Some universities help you. I went to a, what was at the time considered kind of a community college level school. And they now have like, Hey, you know, we have an internship kind of person that's helping nail down internship opportunities for people. So if you have that available, look for it and try and seek those out. What are all the schools of engineering or what are the ones that you've typically gravitated towards? When you first hear about making games, it's like, oh, well, the engineer does everything. But there are, are a lot of different aspects. So depending on the game that you're doing, there's rendering, which deals with drawing stuff on the screen. There's the gameplay group, which deals with kind of making things happen on screen to whatever game you're making. But then you'll have things like networking, which deals with the multiplayer aspect of things. You have servers that deal with, if you are making a multiplayer game, it's like, hey, how do you manage the game rules and all that? You'll have uh, physics for dealing with physical like interactions. Destruction, vehicles. Vehicles, stuff like that. You'll have focuses on tools programming, which is, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with kind of the, either the art tools, which focus on things like Maya or Houdini or Motion Builder or 3ds Max or those types of tool sets that then you're kind of making plugins or making scripts to help the artists do whatever they're doing. Yeah. You're essentially the hero of the developers, but players will never know what you do. Yeah. And those are usually background kind of things. Like you're, you're, you're standing up the team, but nobody knows that you're standing there. Then there's other kind of programming avenues that are dealing with even more fine-grained stuff, such as particle systems or yeah. a specific aspect of graphics. So like yeah, there's like UI. UI pieces, you deal with things such as, hey, we're doing water in our game. And so oh, you yeah. deal specifically with water or you deal with character animation. Audio programmers are always a rare breed. Or you do audio, which is really odd because I really love music yeah. and I never really got into audio programming. I, I don't know why. That's in such high demand everywhere. Yeah. AI programming. The AI programmers are out there. Like there's a large kind of collection of specializations nowadays that in the past really weren't as advertised as those specializations. It was more like, hey, we need an engineer with all this stuff. Yep. And then they specialize based on our need. 
we need a graphics guy, so we'll put him on graphics. But we need a AI guy, so we'll put him on AI. Uh, nowadays, there's definitely jobs that are specifically for, mm-hmm. hey, we need a graphics guy that does this specific thing, or we need an AI guy that does this specific thing. And you'll see it in job descriptions that say like, hey, we need someone that deals with animation for humanoid interactions, which would be like a grappling game, like a wrestling game or a fighting game, a UFC game. And there's a lot of human interaction at that. Animation is heavily used in those, those type of games. So you'll have a very specific role of doing that. My first job was a game company called Big Huge Games. It was a small studio, but we did ship a RTS that was called Rise of Nations, Rise of Legends. I love Rise of Nations. Yeah, Rise of Nations was one of the ones I first got my name on. I got my name on an X-Pack for Rise of Nations, but I didn't really work on it. I was working on Rise of Legends at that point. After that, we shipped a Xbox Live game that was Catan. Which is oh my gosh, you worked on Catan? I did work on Catan. And for both games, I was essentially kind of a generalist. I did graphic stuff. I did physics stuff. I did gameplay stuff. I did art support because we were a smaller studio. One of the things that I did for Catan was actually the skinning system. Like when you change from the, I guess it was the maple skin to the 3D skin, mm-hmm. like handling that was my skinning stuff. That was one of the aspects that I focused on. I got to buy you a shiner for those two alone, man. Yeah. All the years we spent at Rockstar playing basketball, going out to lunch, having drinks. And I did not know that. Maybe I did. I actually had Nicholas Sipman geek out on me on the dev floor when I mentioned that. He's good for that. He he was like, wait, you worked at Big Huge Games? Did you work on this game? I was like, yeah, I did that game. I was like, he was like, oh my God, that's so cool. And I was like, Dude. wow, this is pretty cool. Did you listen to Nick's episode? It's pretty good. I, I did. I did listen to his episode. <laughs> Shout out to Nick Zip, yeah. episode six. So after that, I joined Rockstar San Diego. There I ended up shipping Red Dead Redemption. I then shipped uh, Max Payne 3 and helped ship LA Noir. Yeah, I was there very briefly. I don't even think I had any bugs assigned to me. I was just like over the shoulder, like helping a guy. Sure. Uh, but I helped ship that. Then I was the, the first engineer assigned to what became Red Dead 2. You had to stand it up. Yeah, I stood it up and was supporting the design team at that point as they were building out the world. I was also sh- shifted over and working on GTA 5 for a year. I ended up leaving there and joining EA, Redwood Shores, in the uh, studio that is now defunct, Visceral. I was disappointed to see them close that, but you know it's, it's one of those things. So while I was at Visceral, I helped ship Battlefield 4, and then I was doing a lot of the setup for Battlefield Hardline, a good chunk of setup on that. What would you say are Frostbite's strengths? It has a lot of things built already. It has like a, a build infrastructure that is generic enough to mm-hmm. not be super specialized. It is fairly generic enough to be able to do stuff. There are the low level libraries. I mean, we're generic enough and flexible enough to where kind of you could use those. But once you got into more of the specialization stuff, like for example, in Battlefield, you had the gunsmith thing where you could craft a gun uh, or you could craft a character. Like a lot of that stuff was very specialized for Battlefield. Mm -hmm. And so when you did something like that wasn't Battlefield or slightly different than Battlefield, you had to do a lot more modification than what you would have liked. But that is a problem with very mature, very focused engines in general. Mm -hmm. Where did you go after EA? So after EA, I ended up starting my own company for a little while where I joined someone that I had worked with at Rockstar. My partner was Wolfgang Angho. Yeah, that guy wrote the rendering book, didn't he? 
He wrote many rendering books, <laughs> but he had a company and he and I had been kept keeping in touch. And we started a company where the focus was going to be around the tools, infrastructure, backend, like person is supporting the dev team, but not out front kind of roles. I was thinking that, oh, well, this obviously is going to resonate with a lot of people because every studio I'd been at had the same problems with productivity and kind of iteration time. So I was like, oh, well, obviously we can come in and use our expertise and fix a lot of this stuff. We ended up getting several contracts. This is where I got to work on the Lumberyard engine. We did the particle editor, the the rewrite and the reskin, and we added GPU particles to CryEngine. So that's what our kind of contract was. That's another shine I got to buy you. We're going to work up to a six pack. I'm working on it. After that, there were some issues that led me to need to go somewhere else. And so I ended up getting a job at Blizzard where I worked at the Battle.net side of Blizzard for a little bit, working on the desktop application. And then they started an internal engine team and they were looking for people. And I immediately threw my hat in and was lucky enough to be the first actual engineer hired for the team. Like they had two guys that were starting the team and I pestered them enough to where they were like, okay, well, we got to bring this guy on. And I ended up doing a short stint there where I proved that I could do stuff. And so they hired me to be on that team for the last three and a half, four years that I worked on that. This is their internal blizz tech kind of thing. They started a brand new engine basically to kind of unify a lot of the game team infrastructure as Blizzard has a lot of game teams in it. If you look at their website, they're saying it's like, oh, there's the Diablo team, there's the Hearthstone team and all that. And they all use different tech stacks. Mm -hmm. And so from a corporate perspective, there was an idea of like, okay, well, we want to unify as much as possible, create modules that can be shared. But ultimately, it would be great if we kind of had our own tech that was like shared across the studios. And so that was kind of the motivation for making the game engine team. Dude, core tech is sweet. I mean, it has its downsides, but I dig it. I really like the opportunity to kind of go in and try out things that I've been complaining about for so many years and then trying to get a chance to like not have those things be a problem. Mm -hmm. It was a great experience. After that, I ended up joining Visual Concepts, where I still am, uh, on this great wild ride and opportunity that I have now. Damn, what a journey, bro. There's so much I didn't know, Jay. Yeah. This is why I love this show. I love the opportunity that it gives me, right? For whatever reason, when I was working with a lot of you, I wouldn't take the time to connect as much as I should have. I didn't leverage the time we spent together as I should have. And it took a damn pandemic to remind me to reach out and connect to all these cool people that I know and have interacted with. And thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having the platform. That's one of the things that I as an engineer and I as my own personality needed to realize. And the pandemic affected a lot of things mm-hmm. and it helps either clarify the picture or really accentuate the things that are important in life. Yes. One of the things that I had not been very good at was kind of keeping in touch with the people that I worked with, the people that I respected, the people that helped mold my career. And so having this type of platform allows me to do that. Plus I get to hear your great laugh as much as I can, because I don't know what it is, Ever since I've made you laugh anytime, it's infectious. It's one of those things that I just like to hear. Well, I appreciate that, brother. It's got nothing on John Streepan, man. He's no, legendary. it doesn't. His, his is wonderful. And yes. I, I got him definitely to almost split a gut a couple times, but <laughs> you got to get him on here. He had quite a career as well. 
Yeah, dude, I think I'm going to have to wait till he retires or leaves. You know, the rock star devs are like on gag order. He definitely is a jovial person oh, that yeah. you would get a great conversation out of. But maybe when you retire. Yeah, when he leaves, I'll be out there waiting. Like as yeah. soon as I hear he's changing or retiring, I'll be like, yo, John, it's time yeah. to fall out of play. Oh, man. All right, buddy. We're going to hit the lightning round. Short questions, short answers. You ready for this? I hope so. I will try and restrain myself. What's the last game you finished? 100% or just get to the end of the story? That's a good question. I should start asking Platinum Trophy finish, but finish the game, got the credits. So the last one I finished was actually uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, where I got to the end of the story. The last game that I 100% was Spider-Man, the PS4 version, not Miles Morales. I haven't been able to finish Miles Morales yet that way. Hey, that's a good one. And that was probably one of my platinum. I don't have that many platinums, but Spider-Man is definitely one of them. Deserted Island game. It depends on if it's a desert island where I never can escape. It would definitely be the, the game that actually kind of started all this that I keep remembering whenever I reminisce about games, which is Indiana Jones and a Fate of Atlantis. What console was that on? That's a PC, a PC game. It was that's not on a console. Like it was, it was style? if you remember the, the days of LucasArts. Yeah. Oh, so it looks like Kingslayer kind of? Uh, uh, kind of. Yeah, it has a similar kind of, it's a story-driven game. It's a Sierra game. It was the first game where the story would branch that I could play. That was like the first could, one? That was the first one that I played. Okay, okay. Fair and enough, it really fair. struck me because I played it multiple times. That replayability. And it was like each time I was like, oh, well, what if I did this? And, you know, there, there were three ways that you could play the game. And I played all three ways. And I was interested in what combinations you could make. And oddly enough, I got to meet both of the designers of that game and thank them. So that was kind of a cool moment, being able to talk to them and say, hey, thank you for this game. And one guy was actually at a conference and he was talking about another game that he had made. And I said, hey, thank you for this game. And he was like, wow, yeah. man, that's, I haven't heard that game in so long. It was like kind of like a refreshing moment of like, oh, wow, you, you know my early work kind of thing. I can't tell you how great of a feeling that is to be thanked for your work on the thing that you slaved for to get out into the public. So anybody listening out there, it always feels good. Take the time out. Thank a dev for their work. You know, I've had people come up and thank me for various things uh, at times. And it's wonderful to hear it from the players. Like the developers inside can thank you as well. But having a player come up and tell you, hey, this title changed my life or helped me engage with the world in a different way. And thank you for that. You know, sometimes when I tell them like, hey, I didn't actually work on the gameplay stuff, they're like, I don't care. You helped to get out the door. That's what matters to me. And that's happened multiple times. And it's really cool when that happens. What is the last book you read? The last book I read, it's a programming book, actually. Yeah, I like so those. There, there's a series of books called the Clean Coder series. There's a progression of books. Mm -hmm. There's Clean Coder, Clean Architecture, and I read the Clean Architecture book most recently, and that one was helpful. I've gotten deeper into kind of the nerdy, kind of non-gamey side of programming, sure. C++ and things like that. So I'm reading a lot of books that are not directly about games, but are about C++ that we use to make games. Hey, man, you're well past your 10,000 hours in mastery, man. So there's only so much more to go. Well, I'm always learning. So, mm -hmm. you know, and things are always changing. So there's always a new challenge. What is the thing that you enjoy the most about engineering on games? So there's two things. One that is solving the problem. Like I like solving the problems and kind of feeling like I feel as though 
a cleanliness washes over you when you solve this problem that you've been tracking for so long. And then there's the interaction with the content creators, the spark that you see when they actually click a button and it does something for them and it makes yes. something easier. Like their eyes light up and they just have this surge of creativity. I love seeing that. Yes. I get a little bit of that taste as a tech designer, but yeah, I can imagine, man. That's fantastic. What, if anything, do you miss about being in the office? I guess the the things that you kind of started this podcast about, you know, I took for granted kind of the interactions that I had there. And while I wasn't kind of having my personal life kind of cross over into the interactions that I had, there was a a place where you could go have interactions with folks about mm -hmm. programming, about whatever. And it wasn't necessarily business oriented. Yeah. And the, I guess the, the term would be kind of the, the cooler talk. Like yeah, the go water to the water cooler, cooler and you're talking about some sort of programming thing or someone's talking about the game that they played yep. or the experience they had. And you don't really get that as much mm -hmm. uh, at home. Some of that is leadership as well. So some leadership choices are around kind of having these kind of open forum, like Zoom calls mm -hmm. where you get in and it's like, we're all just kind of in the Zoom call, hanging out together and conversation can either kind of spring up from that or there's a moment where you can kind of see the other person and be like, oh, okay, we're kind of in the office a little bit. That was a key pandemic survival mechanism that a lot of teams were trying to implement, right? These like virtual happy hours or whatever, mm -hmm. curious is there anything you're doing on your team to give an outlet for that? One of the things that we're doing now is more kind of just having a place for people to kind of talk. And it's it's a weird thing because we don't have that mandatory like, hey, here's a room that you go into mm -hmm. to kind of have those conversations. But I think there's a encouragement to kind of engage and talk and like, hey, you're running into this problem and kind of have those kind of BS time periods where yeah. you're kind of just hanging out, like talking to each other. Are these like blocked out in the calendar at all or something? So I've had it where they are, but it's happened where if there isn't something to talk about, the engineers start talking about the bug that you're trying to solve. <laughs> and so there's like some kind of pressure that you need to put on to say like, hey, you know, we're not talking about this. Yes. And, you know, we're, we're kind of trying to hang out and then everyone gets quiet all of a sudden. And so then you got to like, okay, well, you know, you got to throw out something. Yeah. Some icebreakers are always handy yeah. for that. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Right. Let's say it was, it could be this year. It could be the fifties, forties. I don't know. I mean, there is a thought experiment that I've done from time to time when evaluating my career and the trials and tribulations that I've gone through is like, if you had infinite money and everything was taken care of, what would you do? A lot of people say like, oh, I travel the world, blah, blah, blah. But eventually you've done all that. Mm -hmm. What do you do then? I keep going back to, I want to program. I want to <sighs> make games. And so if I wasn't doing this, I would probably be doing some job to pay the bills and then doing programming or doing games, making games, playing games, doing kind of the things that you see all the Twitch people doing now, like casting Streaming. and all that stuff. Even though I'm not a huge personality that some of the casters are, I would probably do the YouTube stuff for a game. Just like I'm playing a game and we're talking about playing the game and all that because I like that world. I like it. I wouldn't have anticipated that. And now I'm kind of smiling hearing that. What's something most people don't know or would be surprised to know about you, Jay? I think something that we touched on earlier in the conversation, which is when I ask a question about you, about mm -hmm. your past, I am generally interested in learning about you. So I grew up in a very small town. I think that's something to do with it. There's a super superficiality that kind of the city folk have 
as it were, as I stereotype yourself who I'm, I'm listening. asking all the questions <laughs> where people will ask things and they just really don't care. They're just doing it to try and be polite. Mm -hmm. And I am curious because everyone's perspective kind of builds who they are. And someone's perspective is something that only they have. And if they share it with you, it is something that is extremely valuable. You're absolutely right. There's not enough people that know how to listen. There's people that ask questions and are essentially just waiting for their turn to talk. Yeah. I wonder if that is an element of being from Weimar, Texas, a town of less than 2,000 people or what, but it's definitely a beautiful thing about who you are. Yeah. It, it can lead to trouble in meetings sometimes because you are waiting for your turn, but then the conversation moves on and they don't like the leadership or whoever's running the meeting doesn't necessarily have the same mindset. So they're not trying to give people that forum or to get those different perspectives. They're just like, okay, we solved this problem and they move on. I, I have seen that happen in meetings. So it is a thing to weigh. I know that time is always a thing and a factor of meetings, right? Like more people in a room, more money being burned, but especially in the pandemic where it's a Zoom room and, you know, you have the little Hollywood squares of people. I like to encourage leadership and managers and producers to call on people and make sure that everybody's voice is heard, right? Otherwise, why the hell are they in the meeting? You know what I'm saying? You could just send them the recording. So if they showed up to the meeting, give them a space, invite them in to talk. Yeah. And some of it is just as simple as just asking for their input. For team members that are of groups that are less represented in engineering, just giving them that forum and platform saying like, hey, what do you think can lead to all kinds of good things? So there is a moment that as a leader or a person running the meeting, you kind of have to be cognizant of. Mm -hmm. But it's still a thing that I wish was kind of more ingrained in people and is ingrained in me. And I've gotten burned by it at times because I'll have that mindset and then just the meeting won't have that mindset. You've worked on RTSs, core tech shooters, wrestlers. You've been an entrepreneur. Is there anything left for the type of game you'd love to work on given the chance the franchise or IP you'd love to work with or a group of people or a team? There are kind of a handful of people that's like, hey, you know, if I were to start a studio and they were willing to come join me, I'd love to work with these folks. But I'd kind of like to work on an RPG. Like a JRPG or like a Bioware RPG? More like a Bioware RPG. I was going to lean into that, like that choose your own adventure, create your own narrative thing. Yeah, specifically, I would really love to do uh, a Knights of the Republic type title. Oh, shit, dude. That's so one of my favorite games of all time, and it would be great to kind of make something in there. If that game didn't have the Star Wars theme on it, would it still be as good? The Star Wars theme made it the thing that I would buy. Okay. That game came out while I was still in school, and it came out on Xbox only. And I was waiting for the PC port. And one of the team members that I had at Full Sail said, this game is too good. I'm going to give you my Xbox so you can play it. And so it was like, okay, I have to play this game. And if it was a different theme, I don't know if I would have been drawn to it as much. I might have given it its due uh, just later on, not right away. That game is widely renowned and special and beautiful. And it'd be cool to have you back at EA working on those types of games. But future, who knows what will happen? Where can people connect with you, reach out to you, see your work? Is your team hiring? My team is hiring. We have a posting on the Visual Concepts website uh, for VCLA. Go check it out. I have a LinkedIn 
I have been fairly curating it. Like there's been people that try to connect all the time, like recruiters and things like that. And I've been a little bit more hesitant to just accept everybody because mm-hmm. uh, there is a little bit of guardedness to your kind of core group of people that you want to kind of keep in contact with and kind of just opening the floodgates can create weird scenarios where you have a guy on your list. And you're like, how did I get that yeah. guy on my list? Hey, I, I'm the same way. I have my LinkedIn blocked. Like if you don't know my email, you can't hook up with me. And so to that, send a note. If you're going to try to link up with Jason, tell yeah. him why you're connecting, how you heard about him. Those of you that may be out there that are in school and getting in through college and things like that, like I have reached out to various programs like that in the past to give advice and talk to people. I've been uh, an advisory member on a in, on a college program, uh, as well as kind of come and given presentations at universities or high schools to be like, hey, this is what I do. This is how I got into this. So that is something that you know, don't be scared to reach out if you are someone that isn't already in the game industry and you're curious about how to get in. There you go. There's your invitation. Okay, Jay, you know what's coming. Who do you nominate to fall out of play area behind you? So I have two people for you and they have they have both agreed to do this. Oh, shit. Yeah. So now you're in trouble. Damn, you got the pre-approval. That's, that's what's up. Yeah, I don't want to throw names out and they're going to look at me and go, why did you do that? That's happened. Both people came from my very first job, Big Huge Games. Oh, fantastic. It's a deep cut. They both have kind of done different aspects of game development than me. One is has their own company and they're doing UX. His name is Jason Sklar. And then the other person was a producer when I was at Big Huge Games and has kind of risen to the rank of COO at a company. Her name is Erin Krell. Man, I don't interact with enough COOs out there. Their interaction set me up on the road that I'm on. And whether I gave them enough credit or not, they kind of helped mold me into where I'm going now. Hey, well, now's your chance. Hopefully they listen to this and they know it's uh, ingrained forever in the audio banks of the internet. Jay, this has been fantastic, bro. Are there any closing words for the people listening out there? So one thing that my grandfather told me a long time ago that has stuck with me and I use in every interview I've ever gotten to is you never stop learning. Your education is something that no one can take away from you. Someone can come and take your car. They can take any sort of material item that you have. But if you learn something, no one can take that from. Boom. I love that. You weren't the most passionate student, but you've definitely never stopped learning, signing up for degrees upon degrees and journeying to schools and diving into different technology and doing whatever you needed to. And even given the chance to not do it, you're still inquiring and learning about people around you. That's what's up. Thank you, Jay. Till next time, friend. Yeah, Thank you, John. Wonderful talking to you. Peace. Our first full-time engineer episode is in the books, episode 29. And WWE 2K22 is out. I'm going to be looking to pick up a copy to support the homie. It appears to be getting pretty nice acclaim and being well-received as a great leap above what 2K20 did like three years ago. And it's benefited from being an extra year in the oven. Jason's giving me a run for my money. I thought I had touched the most engines in the game, but he's got me beat. His tale has a resounding message of how his interests, along with his teachers and friends, eventually, and even his parents, right? They eventually got him steered onto his professional calling in programming and engineering. 
so much so to the point where when I ask him, you know, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? He's still like, yo, I would be doing it. I can't see my life without it, even if it is a hobby. Even if I was doing something else to make money, I would still be doing this on the side. He's done so much back-end engineering and gameplay. He's got such a wide breadth of experience that still reading his craft and still putting hours into Mastery Squared that I'm curious when he might make another plunge and strike out again to build maybe his own studio. That'd be super interesting and I wouldn't be surprised if it happens. We got deep onto some burnout. I think that's always an issue that's gonna face anybody who's been doing this for long enough. And it'll be fantastic to get to a point one day in the future where we can look back on this thing as a legacy of how we used to do things. But for now, you know, it's still a very real thing. And it's a story that is worth continuing to tell onward and forward to remind people that it's a very real thing and we can always do better about handling it and safeguarding it and spotting the warning signs, especially as we work from home, right? There's kind of a new frontier that will sneak up on us and it is a business. And while delaying a game because of the difficulties of building a thing from home is an option, how long can you do a thing? It's worth the continued conversation for sure. On episode 30, you know, I try to bring a dear homie out for every 10th episode and 30 is no exception. So we into sit down with design director over at Polyarc, another fellow Full Sail alumni, and a not lol till the end, who shipped the multiplayer on Red Dead Redemption. Got to break in by working on Midnight Club, and got to take his talents onto Mobile Tiny Racer, and now up here in Seattle, putting in that work at Polyarc on Moss 1, and Moss 2 is coming out in a couple of weeks on Monday, April 11th. Make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ran, bring them home. Fight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Captain crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out-of-play area podcast. Out-of-play, out-of-play area podcast. It's just a little something for the game devs. Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous. Had to switch the styles for a challenge. Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales. A new podcast comes to provide the balance. With game dev veterans and rising talents. Out of play. Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast. A show by game devs for game devs. With no ads, no BS, just the real. Welcome to the Out of Play Area. Let's go.